Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is popular philosopher Alain de Botton. If there's a common thread running through Alain de Botton's best-selling oeuvre, from How Proust Can Change Your Life, via the consolations of philosophy and the architecture of happiness, to the pleasures and sorrows of work, it is surely the question, how are we to live richly, meaningfully, well? And in seeking answers to that question, he has frequently had recourse to the wisdom of the great thinkers and philosophers of the past. In his new book, he turns to religion for answers to that question. Not just in the form of texts and thinkers, but also its rituals, sense of community, its attitudes of reverence and gratitude. Lest there be any doubt, he says up front, let us bluntly state that any God-given sense. However, the premise of this book is that it must be possible to remain a committed atheist find religion sporadically useful, interesting and consoling. Such is the quest in Religion for Atheists. When I met Alain recently, just before he headed off on an Australian book tour, I remarked that on my way to his office, I'd cycled past a sign advertising gym membership with the slogan, Treat Yourself. Having read his book, I sensed that he would have preferred a less self-indulgent, more bracing exhortation inspired by the religious worldviews he's been imbibing. Well, I think if you say you know, treat yourself, um, is, is quite symptomatic of a lot of signs in commercial life, which is they're tapping into something good that we all really long for, like treating ourselves or falling in love or being good. But then there's a disc between the promise and what's actually being sold to you. So you'll find that treat yourself is actually selling you an exercise that you're being peddled a bar of chocolate or um, a trip to Disney World. In other words, things that are not really the depths of our needs and the complexities of our hearts and souls. So I, I'm, I'm all for uh, attempts to, to make life more pleasant, but we have to make sure that the mechanisms behind it are, are complex and, and subtle. And uh, insatiable, and that insatiability is fed, isn't it, by the, the culture of, of commerce that surrounds us. I, I look at in, uh, in my book is the way that commercial culture sets up an idea that all, all problems, solutions that the market can take care of. But of course, some of our biggest problems have no particular solutions. There's nothing we can buy to make it go away. Death being the, the prime example of this, um, at which point we're starting, we start to need other things. We start to need varieties of consolation. And this is traditionally what religions have been in the business of, of offering, a sort of consolation for the tragic aspects of existence that, that nothing else can solve. Now, you say in the book that you were raised by atheist fundamentalists. Now, I wondered if you could expand a little bit on what sort of spiritual dimension you, you experienced as a child, the experience of spiritual dimension. I didn't experience any, any spiritual sense, and I'm still not particularly interested in that. But I acquired first an experience of what a, a certain kind of militant atheism can, can be like and what it's fed by psychologically needs. And I wasn't ultimately impressed. I think that this sort of atheism misses out on why people assumes that people are becoming religious on the basis of uh, sound cognitive arguments, rather than, as I think, people, uh, people become religious because of emotional vulnerabilities. In other words, to ask someone, why do you believe, expect a scientific answer is ultimately gonna be quite a cruel line of attack because really the I'm mortal and afraid and can't take it. And to then start to advance a series of logical arguments against such a person 
is just going to serve absolutely no purpose. And this has been my argument with people like Dawkins, that they, their opponents have arrived at their positions by rational means. Of course they haven't. So you're attempting in this book to get beyond the rather sterile, polarised debate about belief and, and religion. That's right. I mean, for the last 10 years or so, being an atheist has meant not only thinking that religion is untrue, it's also meant thinking that it's ridiculous. And the primary task of the atheist seems to be to attack religious people as simpletons and maniacs and murderers and morons. And while there is folly and intolerance and bigotry in uh, many points in, in all religions, Actually, religions don't have a, a monopoly on these uh, qualities that roam, unfortunately, f freely um, among all human activities and all human types. So for me, I start by saying that, of course, God doesn't exist. That's why I'm an atheist. But I'm not going to linger on that. I'm not going to try and persuade you. If you want to leave, leave. And if not, let's stick around for what I think is the far more interesting conversation, which is, now what? Where do we go from? And I suggest that secular society has not got all the answers. There are all kinds of things that we might religion in terms of good ideas on what human beings need without in it for a minute from a firm atheist line. You also interestingly say that religion didn't necessarily come up with many of its ideas first. You go back to the classical world or even the pagan world for ideas of ritual and festival and, and moral precept. So mm. you're not necessarily just out to speak. That's right. Religions have all been quite clever at absorbing secular practices that they thought were good. Very often these secular practices have now come to seem inherently religious and um, secular people now stay away from them from the fear. So, you know, classic example is Christmas. Christmas, which started off as essentially a pagan festival about, you know, renew inherently connected to the birth of Christ and therefore frightens off lots of quite sensible atheists. Living in a community devoted to the study of ancient texts used to be what Epicurean philosophers did, but now it sounds like monasticism. Very few philosophers are keen on that. And these are just two examples of practices that were once secular or pagan that by organized religions and therefore rendered impossible as options for um, for atheists but in a mistaken way I you say a little bit more about the contribution you think religion can play in giving us a greater sense of community because community is one of the, the mm. where, where you see it playing some sort of role well one of the things that um the religious and non-religious tend to argue about the modern world is that it's a lonelier place. There are all sorts of reasons for that. And uh, some people say, well, you know, what about Facebook? But I don't think social media is really going to solve the problem that we've got, which is that our communities are fractured, chiefly by work and by the way in which we perform our work nowadays and the value system that goes with modern work. And one of the things that religion does really well is to bring people together in communities. And it does this not, I believe, by an appeal to the supernatural, not by anything that requires an atheist to flinch, but actually by a very simple manoeuvre, which is to gather people in a space and introduce them to one another and render the sociability that's a possibility in all of us more acceptable and safer to express than it would be you know, out in the street. So you can say that religions perform the function of a host. And just as at a party, a host will take recalcitrant guests and tease them out of, of their own shells, bring them together. So that is, in a sense, what religion does. And it's something that we can all learn from, whether we believe or not. Pursue that thought a, a little further in that case. How, without the sort of superordinate 
aim of religion, the, the, the larger power and the larger point. How would a secular version of that actually function? Well, this is a, a point that one could ask of, of my entire approach, which is um, if many of the things that religions do appeal themselves to supernatural practices and commitments to a creed, how can atheists come along and say, well, I want just that bit? To which my answer is, as an atheist, I found that many of the things that religions do do have an impact on me, and I can't answer for how they impact on religious people. I don't know what the full strength dose might be like, but all I can report is that I find, you know, a mass not uninteresting, and I find the, you know, cantatas of Bach pretty thrilling, really, and I find some passages of the Old Testament and the New Testament um, very interesting. So, I don't know what these things seem like to believers, but as a non-believer, I can say there's quite a lot here to be getting on with. And I don't think that many of the things that religious people get up to actually does depend on the supernatural structure. And this is quite puzzling for religious people. I mean, if I'd spent tons of money or commissioning you know, Bach or Titian to do some work, I'd be pretty aggrieved that actually some atheists would like this too, and this has quite an effect on us as well. But I think the painful and awkward truth is that it does. These way beyond the functions that religious people assign to them. And that sort of taps into another idea of you written. The spaces in which people inhabit play an influential part in the way they, they think. It sort of helps shape emotional lives. Yes, most religious denominations are fascinated by architecture and are interested in creating spaces that will back up and support their philosophies. They are looking for architectural forms that are material equivalents of psychological, or if you like, spiritual ideas. So literally, in Christian aesthetics, a cathedral is meant to be a foretaste of paradise. But you know, you get this in Zen architecture too, where a Zen Buddhist temple is meant in the quality of its furnishings, in the rather temporary nature, in the roughness of its timber uh, uh, joists. It's meant to be saying, in an architectural language, what the philosophy says in a um, spiritual language. And I think that's very interesting. And I think, well, we tend to divide the aesthetic from the ideological. We tend to have ideas in one corner and the beauty. We, you know, it'd be very unusual for a philosopher to take an interest in interior design. You know, interior design is something that L Decoration gets up to. It's a trivial subject, whereas, you know, big ideas, that's what, you know, clever people get up to. What's interesting about religions is they don't make that distinction on the whole. They unite the body and the mind. They unite the sensory program with an intellectual program, and are for that reason far more effective than many secular ideologies, which because they only operate in the uh, through the reasoning faculties through the intellect can never access parts of us that are really important to access if you're trying to get through to somebody i thought it was interesting when you said that religions work at many levels and that's part of their success whereas you know for example university education is really appealing to the, the intellect alone whereas religions are can operate at the highest or the, or the most um, basic level that's right i mean religions are the most successful educational machines that um, the world has ever witnessed Partly that's because they know that in order to educate their vision of education, and let me add that I disagree with 90% of their vision of education in terms of the content, but in terms of the form, they're very aware that if you want to get your message across, writing a book is not going to do it alone, and nor is sending somebody to university. In the secular world, we believe very much in books, and we believe very much in um, things like schools and universities. But the mechanisms 
of schools and universities are ju- just don't go deep enough. You know, we think if you sit somebody in a classroom age 20 and pour in some Plato and Shakespeare, that will last people uh, for a 40-year consultancy or whatever. Whereas religions are far wiser in recognising that if you're trying to get through to somebody, you know, you need to tell them an idea and by lunchtime they'll have forgotten it and by evening they'll need a top-up. Constant rehearsal, otherwise the idea will go stale. You, you say that the average arts graduate, if they've been, may have read some like 800 books by the time they graduate and yet very few of those have probably really stuck in any significant I'm persuaded by your idea of, of rereading and reading deeply but of course then the question arises well who decides who decides on what the program should by what lights mm. well again this is a question that um, keeps cropping up in relation to um, this project which is what to do I can understand if God is telling me you know that I should read this book etc or listen to that piece of music or say this prayer a with God surely it's just a free-for-all and nobody knows what's good there's no there can be no curriculum there can be no agreement of a kind of chaos and this is the postmodern idea that humans are fractious creatures and that we need societies that leave people alone because we'll never reach agreement on anything I think that's too pessimistic my sense is huge areas of life of course there's a disagreement at the fringes about you know what age fetuses should or should not be aborted essentially there's vast areas of agreement and when you say you know who should decide what we read what what should be our our, our reading I think you know the the decision on a, on an ideal curriculum is one that probably fairly easily if you know, people who care a lot about this set their minds to it, you could quite easily come up with a list of, say, 300 books that you know seem really important. And that's not missing out you know, racial minorities or women or the experiences of the third world. These things can all be integrated and still quite a rounded sense of what a good education should be. And I think there's been such a loss of nerve on the part of the elite, the cultural elite, that we're in danger of sliding into a kind of view that no one knows is dictatorial, any advice is bossy, etc. And that seems a pity because then what we get is the free market. Commercial organisations will step into the vacuum and will simply decide for us what we eat and what we read and what's on television. Beginning about the sort of the offer of, of satisfaction and gratification offered by the free market. And you write very um, interestingly about the constellations of pessimism which religion can offer, and in particular um, the French writer Blaise Pascal. Yes, I think that religions are often mocked for being optimistic and believing in fairies and you know pleasant life in the you know in, in after death. And uh, I agree that there is this naive, credulous side to religions. But what's also fascinating is that most of them are very clear-eyed about human nature in the here and now, in this world. So if you look at the Buddhist analysis of our psychology, it's beautifully clear and also frankly fascinatingly pessimistic for buddhists we are insatiable creatures we are driven by desires that have very little to do with our real need and we need to be very careful of ourselves because we have what the buddhists would call monkey minds uh, jumping around not concentrating avoiding important truths etc for catholics we are the victims of original sin we are broken we are broken creatures and we have some pretty bad stuff going on inside us i love this kind of analysis i don't believe that it requires any structure but i think it's a really good starting point to start from the starting point of we're crazy and kind of broken is a really useful beginning at the beginning of a relationship or simply in relation to you and the world because it immediately undercuts self-righteousness it undercuts a kind of excessive respect for oneself it introduces humor and modesty 
and a, a welcome awareness of one's uh, fragility. And this, the secular world, is a little bit reluctant to take on board. We have a often in the culture that's disseminated through society, there's this idea of technological perfectionism, um, that machines will solve everything, that we're in charge of our destinies, that we're kind of wonderful, amazing creatures, full of beauty and strength and goodness. And this can go a little bit far. And so religions in their pessimism can offer us a useful corrective to some of the kind of techno-optimism that seeps in. Of course, with religion, it's a two-part deal, isn't it? You know, things down here may be terrible, but there is a promise of salvation in the world to come. From the atheist point of view, if we if we accept the first part, it's rather bleak. You know, we are broken, fragile creatures, and there's nothing to come. Uh, that's right. There's nothing to come. And if you think that religions um, are consoling chiefly because of what they offer us in the next life, then this is really bad news. However, my view is that um, religions, and indeed lots of things, are available in this life and have consoling manoeuvres that we can borrow from. I'm very impressed by the power of culture, but also of psychoanalysis to solve in community, uh, in sharing problems, in being with other people, in delineating our worries and woes to people who might feel the same things, and also in looking after other people so that our own problems can be set in a, in a wider context. So there are all sorts of things that uh, one can do in uh, a world where one doesn't believe in, in heaven, and some of those are drawn from religions and others from a wider pool. Now, Alain, Islam is conspicuous by its absence in this book, and I wondered what the reason for that was. Mm. I think I wanted to leave out Islam because this is a book uh, not about comparative religion, but about the relationship between religion and the secular world. And it struck me that uh, I live in a, a Christian country, but a, a Jew by birth, but knew very little about Judaism, and have never really understood very much about Buddhism. I know a lot about Islam because I've written a lot about Islamic architecture and spent a lot of my life in Islamic countries. So weirdly, I'm much less interested in Islam as a new intellectual terrain. I wanted to challenge myself to discover what was familiar, yet actually unknown to me properly. I also know that the debate around Islam is so vociferous that I wanted to steer clear of it for in de- for danger of my book becoming a debate about Islam. And it's not really, it's not about any one religion. It's about a religious mindset and the difference between that religious mindset and the secular world. Most of the things I say about uh, religions could be applied to uh, Hinduism or uh, Islam or uh, any number of faiths. As I say, I look at only three and a choice had to be made. Where do you see the balance between the individual's um, instinct to try and draw nourishment from religion and a more kind of collective, organised um, version of the same? Because you write about the university, the, the mm. art gallery, institutions. So mm. to, to what extent is it, is it a personal matter and to what extent is it something that you're sort of projecting on a, on a larger mm. social canvas? Well, I think that, you know, one of the dominant features of religions is that they are, of course, organised. In, in other words, they are not merely a selection of people finding their way to certain ideas in the way that poetry is. Contemporary poetry is a, an example of a completely unregulated field where individual people make individual discoveries. Now, I come from a very individual ground culturally, and you know, my, my faith has been with people who do make individual discoveries and don't take advice from every, anyone else and are not part of a group. My default position is to be suspicious of the group, but, but, huge but, as I get older and as I look at religions, I began to be very interested in the fact that these are institutions, they are organised groups of people who do things together, they worship the spring together, they say thank you together, they eat together, 
And that's actually pretty fascinating. And I think one of the problems of the secular world is that those people who have ideas are fierce individualists. And though that's tr you know well and good and 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 uh, you know has full marks for authenticity, it also makes you quite powerless because it means that you're never joining forces with anyone, and your message get, gets lost. And I think the secular world is full of people with quite good ideas who refuse to join up with anyone in getting these ideas across. You know, there are endless books written about, you know, how to lead a moral life or uh, how to bring up children, etc. So the secular world is dominated by people who are running what are in effect um, cottage industries, writers, psychotherapists, poets, you know, social investigators. On the whole, these are people who are on their own. Voice is very weak, you know. The assumption is often made by atheists that the way to combat religion is, is to write a book and give a few lectures. But that's to miss the fact that religions are not merely books and a few lectures. They are systems. And if you're trying to combat those systems, you need a system of your own. Otherwise, you're not going to get there. What would you say to as just a bottle turning up the dosage of the opiate for the masses? It's actually a sort of political sort of project more than more than a sort of. Well, it is a political project in the sense that this I'm interested in how we live together with other people. I think that religion has been one of the areas in which the needs of the spirit and the soul are negotiated in political space. And what do we have nowadays? You know, what, what's taking care of this? And I think we have art and its public manifestations, the world of museums and cultures. We have the mass media and we have education. And I think each of these, which I discuss, each of these in relation to religion, has got flaws and has got things to learn from religion and is leaving things out, quite important things from religion. I think what we're desperately in need of in the secular world is an approach of guidance. We need help in how to live. Answer to this, you know, we're beyond the age of kind of one answer, one God, one book, etc. The answer is going to be plural, but we're not doing a very good job of dealing with our freedom. You know, the modern world is was all about winning freedom, and we've done it. We're doing much less well in knowing how to use that freedom to live a good and a wise life. And in many ways, that's the emotional heart of the book. That's the emotional complaint of the book. When it comes to art, you say that comfort in a gallery because they don't actually know what to make of the art beyond, you know, where the painter was born and, you know, the sort of academic of, of art. And you think we shouldn't be scared of actually being a bit more directive and saying what, what art is about. Doesn't that the ability to, to think freely, creatively to respond to something? If, if we are in front of a, a Richard Long piece as this, doesn't that really inhibit exploration of, of art as a, as a nourishing spiritual encounter? I think there is an assumption nowadays that if you say too much to somebody what a certain work might be about or for, you ruin that work of art for them. And that's the kind of dominant idea in, in the curatorial world. We have to, to make our own decisions about stuff. And though that's admirable in a sense, it can also lead in many cases to people thinking, well, I don't really know what this is all about. And, and people leaving very puzzled. I mean, if you look into audience surveys of what people get out of galleries, there's some pretty depressing news if you're really thinking that art can save and change our lives. Now, if you think that art can be, you know, a quite interesting thing to do for a few minutes with no lasting impact, then things are fantastic at the moment. But I think most artists and most people who care about art do have a much more 
powerful ambition for what art could be, that art could really be one of the things, one of the major pillars on which a good life rests. And we, I think in the modern world, in this paradoxical position, that on the one hand, art has got this tremendous prestige, and on the other hand, punching at its appropriate weight. So I think that the example of religions is quite interesting because religions explicitly would use art in the service of ideas and in the service of therapy, you might say. It's part of reminding you of what a good life is about. And I think modern artists do this anyway, but you wouldn't know it from the way in which art is presented to us. I don't think artists, good artists, have ever stopped trying to change us and save the world. That's just naturally what artists do. But there's a rather unhelpful public atmosphere where that side of their ambitions is really quashed. I mean, as with the university curriculum, the question again comes up of who decides. You know, if, if there is some mediation between the artist and the, um, the viewer, who is providing the mediation? Is it the artist or is it the curator or, or is it some kind of more polyphonic contribution from from a variety of people and I, I, I just wonder if that if that mediation then gets in the way of the the art and you end up spending longer reading the um, you know the, the, the entry and the catalogue or the, the, the text and all that happening to it look I think um, the assumption uh, the, the, the reason why people don't necessarily like guidance in life it that guidance is going to come in a very bullying way and there will be no room for anything else so someone's going to tell you what to do how to live and th- this is the fear of religion the fear of religion is that religions will dominate and squash any individuality etc and we are still traumatized many of us are still traumatized by that example of what guidance looks like but there is of course another model which is what you might call tentative guidance which is different voices saying look i think you should do it like this or what about if we did it like that now none of those voices is coercive it's suggestive it, it's making proposals but it's not doing so coercively and i would far rather a multiplicity of these voices than a kind of institutional i'd rather some suggestions on how we might live some of which are good and others of which one could walk away from but at least they're there at least we're not living in a kind of vacuum and filled by commercial messages and commercial imperatives you're putting lots of really stimulating ideas out there they might be picked up on and taken forward either by yourself in, in projects that you've got going like the School of Life or, or by others. In which explicitly I um, put forward all sorts of ideas that atheists might take away from religion and institute in their own line. How to eat communally, to certain rites of passage that one might be inspired by, to works of art one might learn from, and you know ways of re- reorganising education. So I make big and small suggestions. Um, and so in that sense, it's a kind of utopian book. It's playful in tone. I don't necessarily expect that all these ideas will be taken up by every reader by any means, but I'm hoping to set in the reader's mind a sort of feeling of, okay, well, what what might I do? You know, the world's not perfect. We haven't invented everything we know. Let's look at these religions and see what we might steal from them, see how we might be inspired by them. So I'm aiming to set forth a creative kind of questioning in, in the reader. Alain de Botton. Religion for Atheists is out now in hardback. You can find out more about it, as well as Alain's previous books and several million other titles besides, by going to blackwell.co.uk. There's also a podcast archive there with over 150 author interviews. Look for the podcast tab on the home page. And we're now producing short video interviews with many of the authors we meet to complement these audio podcasts. Look out for them on the product page of each title. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.